Over the years, there are many challenges facing the church. And many times the church is supposed to influence the world. We have allowed the world to influence the church. There are both internal and external challenges. And But I can tell you, I can give you very quickly, there are three forces that are changing the church. There are three forces that are around that is influencing how the church is being run. The first force that is influencing the way the church is being run is entertainment. We cannot underestimate the influence of entertainment upon preaching and music and many other areas. Entertainment has become a way of life and has permeated all aspects of society and culture. And as such, it has encroached upon how the church runs ministry as well. So much of what people say and do is defined by entertainment. Then we are not surprised to find that entertainment has encroached upon how the church is being run. And many Christians have the misconception that to win the world to Christ, we must must first win the world's favor. If we can get the world to like us, they will encourage, they will embrace our Savior. That is the philosophy behind many of the user-friendly kind of church movement. So entertainment is the first thing that has influenced the way the church runs. And secondly, second influence is uh, market-driven, bottom lines. We have come to think that church is like running a company. What matters is bottom line. If I pump $10,000 into evangelism, make sure we produce 10 souls. If we don't produce 10 souls, it means we said it's not successful. We become very market-driven and very bottom-line way of approach towards ministry because we have been run by consultant and high-powered corporate kind of institution and influencing the way we measure success. Success must be measured by the way the world measured it. And because since unsaved consumers do not desire God or the things of God, they have to be enticed by something else. And thus the temptation then arises for a church to change or at least hide who they are so that they can appeal to unchurched people. And additionally, the church is tempted to alter its message to correspond with what the unchurched wants to hear and thinks he needs. And the end result is a felt-need gospel that appeals to people's fallen nature in an effort to entice them to come to Christ, the ultimate felt-need supplier so that he is fulfilled and feels better about himself. And the third forces that has influenced the church is psychology. A.W. Tozer many years ago says, a new wind is blowing across the fields of the evangelical church. If I see it aright, the cross of popular evangelicalism is not the cross of the New Testament. It is rather a new bright ornament upon the bosom of a self-assured and carnal Christianity. The old cross slew men 
the new cross entertains them. The old cross condemns, but the new cross amuses. The old cross destroys confidence in the flesh, but the new cross encourages it. Psychology has influenced the way messages are being preached as well. But we don't realize that psychology's starting point is completely different from the gospel. Psychology always traces back to some childhood things, uncover layers after layers, revisit those issues. Whereas gospel is saying to you, you are born sinners. You need Jesus Christ as your Savior to redeem you first. And so, nothing in Scripture indicates that the church should lure people to Christ by presenting Christianity as an attractive option. Because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. There is no way to make it otherwise and be faithful to the message. The gospel itself is disagreeable, unattractive, sometimes repulsive and alarming to the world. It exposes sin, it condemns pride, it convicts the unbelieving heart and shows human righteousness, even the best and most appealing aspect of human nature, to be worthless, defiled, and even filthy rags. And that is why Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, many years ago says this. He said, the word of God is not for sales. And therefore, it has no need of shrewd salesmen. The word of God is not seeking patrons. Therefore, it refuses price cutting and bargaining. Therefore, it has no need of middlemen. The word of God does not compete with other commodities which are being offered to men on the, on the bargain counter of life. It does not care to be sold at any price. It only desires to be its own genuine self without being compelled to suffer alterations and modifications. It will, however, not stoop to overcome resistance with bargain counter methods. And promoters' success are sham victories. Their crowded churches and the breathlessness of their audiences have nothing in common with the Word of God. So Jesus is not for sales, and we don't have to market Jesus. We don't have to make Him more appealing. We only need to faithfully and courageously proclaim the Jesus of the Bible as revealed in God's Word. And that leads me down towards what I want to talk about today. And that is what I believe that the ultimate purpose of you as a Christian is just a salvation. But while you are on earth, God is in the process of shaping, molding, conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate goal. It's not just salvation. It's God beginning to work in you and molding you, shaping you. I want to build a biblical basis of the call to Christ-likeness. And I want to give you three verses to show you way back even before the foundation of the world, past, God says that His purpose is to shape us into Christ-likeness. Past, I want to show you a verse about present. And I want to show you another verse in the future. Past, present, future all is pointing towards that God's goal is to shape us and mold us and want us to be more Christ-like. Let me give you the verse that is looking from the past. Romans 8. For those whom He foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. To be conformed to the image of his son. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Way past God's ultimate goals for his people is to become like Christ. For Christ's likeness is the will of God for the people of God. Past, conformed to the image of his son. Let me bring this down to the present. And that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that says, And we all, Paul say, who with unveiled faces contemplate or reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed or changed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Again, in the current point, saying currently in the present, we who are we unveil faces, contemplate and reflect on the Lord's glory, are being transformed in the process. Now is to conform and transform you into His image. The perspective has changed from the first one and the second one, from the past to the present, from God's eternal predestination to His present transformation of us by His Holy Spirit. From God's eternal purpose to make us like Christ to His historical work by His Spirit to transform us into the image of Christ. So past, present, and there is a verse that talks about future. In 1 John chapter 3, it said, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And if God is working to this end, it is no wonder He calls us to cooperate with Him by saying, follow me, imitate me. We don't know in any detail what we shall be, but we do know that we will be like Christ. And there's really no need for us to know anymore. We should be content with the glorious truth that we will be with Christ and be like Christ. So past, present, future is God's eternal purposes in our lives is to shape us, mold us to be more and more like Christ. So here there are three perspectives built on biblical basis of Christ likeness. Past, present and future. All that are all pointing in the same direction. God's eternal purpose and God's final eschatological purpose that we will be like Him. These all combine towards the same end, Christ-likeness. For Christ-likeness is the purpose of God for the people of God. So now that I establish that God's eternal purpose is, to, is that end, is to make us more Christ-like, I want to give you directly from God's word five areas what areas we need to be Christ-like? I'm going to take from the scripture as directly as it is saying, imitate me, or, or from, from Paul's letter, directly saying the areas that we need to be like Christ. Right? The first one is we are to be like Christ in His humanity. In His humanity. 
I only short for using the word his incarnation. I, I feel that we might confuse that because that is once and for all in a sense. We are to be like Christ in his humanity. And of course, that is the passage in famous passage in Philippians chapter 2. That each time come Christmas time, we often will read it. You look at verse 5. The purpose of Paul writing about Christ descending to become human and dying on the cross is to tell us that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So that was his main point. And then he used Jesus as, as an example to say, because Christ was like that, therefore I want your attitude to be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So we are to be like Christ in his humanity. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That was his charge. That was the, 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 the thing that we are to imitate Christ, who being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Or other versions, something to be grasped that we are all more familiar with. Who being God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something that he would use it to his own advantage. Because Trinity is equal. But when he took on the role of a son, he forgo certain rights, certain privileges. Not his divinity or humanity. Uh, humanity. He gave up his privileges, his rights. And therefore here, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, and even death on the cross. And then the second part, of course, and then so from penthouse, Jesus descend all the way down the basement. From riches, he descend all the way, way down the, the, the racks. So not from racks to riches, but from riches to racks. And here is one area that we are to be like Christ, to be his humanity. That is to learning to give up our privileges. I often tell, I often say this, that if a person knows how to handle privileges, you know that a person is good. You pay the person, you give them responsibility, they will discharge. You pay them enough money, they will do the work. But you give them privileges. If a person knows how to handle privileges, you know the person is good. So we are to learn to giving up of our rights and privileges. And that is one thing we need to imitate Christ and be. And that's one area. Secondly, we are to be like Christ in His service. Again, I'm taking directly from what Christ asked us to imitate Him. And that is the passage that comes to mind is obviously John chapter 13. Just before Jesus went to the cross and He went and and wash the disciples' feet. So here in John 13, Jesus, after washing the disciples' feet, He said, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Exactly. This is one area I want you to be like me, Jesus said. You should do as I have done for you. Direct words. And then he said, Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, 
nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I don't know of many verses in the Bible directly say you will be blessed if you do this. And Jesus here is saying, you will be blessed if you do that, if you serve. You will be blessed, Jesus said. It's directly from the mouth of Jesus. You will be blessed if you serve. So if you want blessing, this is it. If you want God to bless you, this is it. Direct verse that says you will be blessed if you serve them. I often think that many people, when we go through tragedy in life, the first thing that we drop is serving God. When we encounter hardship, the first thing to let go is serving God. I was confronted by uh, Timothy Keller, which I like this quote very much. He says this. He said, Even if our troubles are great, we should still serve. Why? Because Jesus was his disciple's feet on the way to the cross. He knew that he's going to die the next day and he served the night before. Would you still serve God if you know tomorrow you'll be dying? Or will you be wallowing in self-pity? And Timothy Keller said, Jesus was his disciples' feet on the way to the cross. Don't drop the ball. When hardship comes, that's not the first thing to let go. That should be the last thing to let go. So just as Jesus performed, let me just emphasize this, this, this perspective to you. Because sometimes we live in this culture and, and the Eastern Middle Eastern culture is completely different. Just as Jesus performed what in his culture was the work of a slave. If I do that here in this culture, no big deal. Because Australia is a very egalitarian culture. No big deal. But in an Eastern culture, in a Middle Eastern culture, that's not the case. If you know the, the story of the prodigal son, no dignified man will run a Middle Eastern culture. But the story of the prodigal son, the father lift up his loin and ran towards the street. No, you don't see dignified men run in the kind of culture. And it's the same. The culture of a slave in that culture, if Jesus goes down that level, it is telling us that we must regard no task too menial or degrading to undertake. Because Jesus went to the lowest of the low in their culture. So we should never think that there are any tasks that's beyond our dignity to do it. So we are called to be like Christ in His service. Because that's direct words from Jesus. And thirdly, we are called to be like Christ in His love. And again, this comes from St. Paul in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. They say, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us, 
and He gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The love is to the extent Christ. How does Christ love us? Here He says, He gave Himself up for us. You know, this is a charge towards the husband. Husband, love your wives just as Christ loves the church. How does Christ love the church? He gave His life for the church. And husband's love has to be that great in a sense. So you think submission is difficult? Try loving until you die. So it's a live a life of love and walk in the way of just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul is urging us to be like Christ in His death, to love with Calvary love. Paul is urging us to be like Christ of the incarnation, the Christ of the foot washing and the Christ of the cross. And these events in the life of Christ indicate clearly what Christ-likeness means in practice. I, I won't elaborate on this. We are going to do that with a new series coming up. The fourth thing is we are to be like Christ in His patient endurance. And you can read that in the letter of 1 Peter. Peter, all the way throughout the letter, is talking about suffering because the believers were under persecution. Hang in there, hang in there, look to the cross, look to the cross, Christ endure, you must endure. The teaching of Paul, every chapter of Peter's first letters contains an allusion to suffering for Christ. For the background of the letter is the beginnings of persecutions. And I'm, I think in the 21st century, if Christians continue the way of the cross, we will encounter persecution. And then come down to chapter 2, Peter said, To this you were caught because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. And I think this call to Christ-likeness in suffering unjustly may well become increasingly relevant as persecution increases in many cultures today. You cannot be a, a pastor, a missionary, or a faithful member of the body of Christ without suffering wounds. The body of Christ will always have scars. Think about the incarnation and the physical body of Christ. He was born in a major. What happened to his body? The same body in which he fulfilled all obedience. He was lacerated. He was pierced. He was whipped. He was broken. Not just only physical, emotionally, mentally. It was the body in which he suffered. The world inflicted pain on the body of Christ. And in over 2,000 years of history, the world has always hated the church, which is the body of Christ. It always has and it always will, because the Word of God tells us that. Don't expect the world to love you. John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it will love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And how about 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Paul said, we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We, all, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Do you remember doubting Thomas? Remember how he came to faith after the resurrection of Jesus Christ? In John 20, it says this, unless, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers in there where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Can I tell you what Thomas said of Christ, the world is saying about the church. Unless I see the nail marks in your hands, I will not believe. But because we live in this new gospel, this new user-friendly gospel, that we do not know what is the meaning of suffering for Christ. Because we think that God exists just for us. Make us happy and eliminate every problems in our lives. Therefore, we encounter problems, we straight away say, God, why? And God would probably say, why not? That's how I'm going to shape you. One of the inspiring figures in the 20th century in my life is a missionary called Amy Carl Michael. She went, she was from Northern Ireland. She went to India at the age of 28 years old. And she stayed in India, South India, Tamil Nadu. Guess how many years? 55 years without a single furlough. 55 years in Southern India, Tamil Nadu. Not once returned back to her homeland. And not only that, for the last 20 years of her life, she was bedridden because she had a fall while she was maybe 63 years old. And while in bed, she was able to write many books and edited many of her previous books. There's this poem that I've read before that I, each time I read, I, I get fired up. It's called, Has Thou No Scars? This is what he says. Oh, I have all these verses. Forgot about that. Has thou no scar? That is what Amy Carmichael say. Has thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot? Or sight? Or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I mean, she's from England, United Kingdom. I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent. Lean me against a tree to die and rent. By ravering beasts that compass me, I swooned. Hast thou no scar? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierce are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound 
नमस्कार कैन ही हैव फॉलोड फार हु इज नो वंट नमस्कार मार्क्स ऑफ क्राइस्ट or ct start they say the christian has become chocolate soldiers when the sun comes down the chocolate melts and he said we lack of cord h you know you know musical you got cord a b c d e f g there's no h he said we lack of cord christian lack of cord h heroism heroism we lack that cord h so we are to be like christ in his patient endurance patient endurance hardship suffering pain they are part of the landscape of what it means to follow christ part of the landscape don't follow the new gospel who make it easy to follow christ salvation is free discipleship is very costly very costly the cost of following christ is great but let me tell you the cost of not following christ is even greater is even greater so those are the fifth one very quickly is we are to be christ like in his mission in his mission and that is in john gospel we often refer the great commission from matthew and 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 mark but john has a great commission too and that is in uh, in chapter said as you send me into the world i have sent them into the world and then in chapter 20 as the father has sent me i am sending you this was are uh, immensely significant as i said it's not just a version of the great commission recorded in john gospel it is also an instruction that their mission in the world was to resemble christ in what respect the key words are sent into the world that is as christ had had to send our world sent to our world so we are to enter other people's worlds or what missiological term is incarnational ministry is been beautifully expressed by archbishop michael ramsey when he said we state and command the faith only is in so much as we go out and put ourselves inside the doubt of the doubters the question of the questioners and the loneliness of those who have lost their way this entering into other people's worlds is exactly what we mean by incarnational mission and all authentic mission is incarnational that is slowly that's why in our in our uh, statement in our church is that we journey with people journey with people i love that word journey because journey means you don't rush coming to christ you don't have to rush you have to do the journey with people and when the holy spirit works it is the real work that is the real work so those are the five uh, main ways in which i draw directly from the new testament that we are to be like christ we are to be like christ in his in his in his humanity in his service his love his endurance and his mission let me uh give you my final thoughts 
on becoming like Christ. From this story by Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson, he tells a fascinating story about when he was a pastor in New York City. His church caretaker was a German by the name of Willy Osa. He was an artist, was an artist by day and a cleaner by night. And Osa one day offered to do a portrait of Eugene Peterson. And Peterson agreed only to keep the friendship going. I mean, imagine you just sit down there for one hour, two hours. Um, because he only agreed to it so as to keep the friendship going. Why? Because Osa harbored a quiet but hostile attitude towards Christianity. And day by day, Osa would pain his subject, yet never permitting him to see how he was progressing. And one day, the artist's wife dropped in. And with one look at the picture, she shrieked. She said, sick! You paint him to look like a corpse. Osa, upset by his untimely revelation, snapped back. He's not sick. But that is the way he will look when the compassion is gone, when the mercy gets squeezed out of him. Why? Because Osa hated the state church of his homeland, blaming it for not doing more to stop the Holocaust. He wanted to show Eugene Peterson his future if he persisted in what he perceived to be the Christian way. I mean, it is a sad story and an indictment against Christendom, historic baggage. But behind it all, I wonder if that is not the picture of God that many have in their mind. Maybe some people born out of apparent kind of experience or radical philosophy and one is left with a portrait of an unloving and uncaring God conditioned by the artist's own misperceptions. And once again, a point of reference is needed in order to answer the question. Christ-likeness is so powerful. No wonder our evangelistic efforts are often fraught with failure. Because our main reason is that we don't look like the Christ we proclaim. Gandhi rejected the Christian segregation. And he said, if it weren't for Christians, I'll be a Christian. It was told that Gandhi, who was a practicing Hindu, found Jesus intriguing. And he often said, I love Jesus, but not Christians. He read the Gospels and he wanted to know more about Christ. And on a Sunday morning, he stopped by a Christian church in Calcutta where he was turned away. And since he was not part of the high caste Indians, nor a white person, he was turned away at the door of a church. 
and unwelcome, this incident formed the basis for his quote, if not for Christians, of your Christians. So Christ-likeness is eternally embedded into God's purposes and plans from the past to the present and to the future. And we look at God's word, He directly challenges us those five areas that we need to be like Christ. And thankfully, the passage that we just read just now in 2 Corinthians, it is not our own effort alone, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. But we just need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and allow Him to come and take control and then we slowly surrender many parts of our life to Him and we will bear fruits and will become more Christ-like. Let me just say a word of prayer and then I ask you to stand for a closing song. Lord Jesus, uh, unite our hearts to honour Your name. Lord, we are so scattered. We are so pulled in many directions. We are so easily distracted. How quickly we forget who you are. How quickly we forget your goodness to us. Lord, unite us our heart. Put it back together again. Refocus our thoughts. Clarify our purpose. Grant that we should want you more than anything else. Thank you for your many gifts freely given. Forgive us for loving your gifts more than we love you. And in confessing this, we ask for forgiveness. Lord, here is our heart. Come in and rearrange things around. Make us new from the inside out. Thank you for loving us even when we seem to lose our way. Lord, we love you. Please work in us. Unite our hearts, Lord, to honor your name. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We stand amazed in the presence of God. Thank you. Amen. Amen.